into ancient words. Shape us by this morning. So, kindergartners through fifth graders, you may go now with your teachers to your classes. Before we turn to God's word this morning, um, there are two really important church family things that I want you to be aware of. Um, One of them is about this big, and one of them is like this big, maybe a little bigger. Let me start with this one. Um, This Friday evening, right here at the church building at 6.30, there will be what we call a Friday Forum. I know your bulletin says it's on divorce and remarriage. Here's what it's really on. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, This is not just for people who are directly kind of dealing with these issues. This is for all of us. In fact, if you're a member of this church, I'd encourage you to come. Um, We have never had as a church a formal document outlining our position. We've done our best over the years as a church and as elders to care for people, but over the past few years, we've realized it's necessary for us to have a statement as a church on what we believe marriage is and what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage, and so we've worked hard as elders. Uh, That document has been painstakingly and prayerfully written, and we now want at this forum to share this with you. And... By doing so, give us an opportunity as a church to celebrate and to protect and to honor marriage. And we can honor what God says about hard situations in marriage and do our best to help one another. So this Friday, 6.30 to 8 o'clock right here, please come. Now, second, I have some very exciting and very important news. I wanted to share this before we dismiss the kids because, Lord willing, this will have a lot to do with them uh, before too long. As you know, we have been prayerfully seeking God for a new youth pastor. By the way, Josh Ortiz was sitting right down there in the first service, and I just sensed it was God's sweet providence to have him here while we made this announcement, because I know that Josh carries a great desire for this church to continue on uh, in faith, and so that was just the sweet providence of God. Uh, but we've been prayerfully seeking God for a new youth, youth pastor over the past three or four months. I want to let you know this morning that we believe that God has answered our prayers. As an elder team, we've been praying for a man who would, A, be a faithful man of God with a high degree of love for God's word in his church, and B, be a man clearly marked by godly character, and C, have a high degree of alignment with our values and vision as a church, and D, have a degree of experience leading a youth ministry and a corresponding life experience, and E, fit well with the team, and F, who also recognized a providential call to come join this body. In other words, not just some guy off the street who's looking for a job. By God's grace, we believe that he has brought such a man to us. His name is Ryan Fultz. Ryan currently serves as a at a church in uh, northern Kentucky as their director of high school ministries. He and his wife, Tabitha, met with 
the elders of this church, the leadership team, their wives, uh, in an extended visit a couple weeks ago. In fact, just two weeks ago, he was sitting right down here um, in church. Um, We had a wonderful time of meeting with him. We were amazed at how God had answered our prayers. So the elders, after that weekend, after prayer and deliberation, we responded by unanimously extending a call to Ryan to be our pastor of student ministries. I am glad to report that this past week, Ryan accepted that call, and now this is what this means for us as a church. As an elder team, we are eager to introduce Ryan and Tabitha to you and to recommend him to you as a new pastoral team member. They are currently planning on being here on the weekend of October 27th to meet with us for us to get a chance to know them more broadly, and we would then be asking you to affirm our sense of God's calling on him at our membership meeting in November. If that all goes well, Ryan would be joining the team in early January, which is not that far off. Um, We'll have more information. We'll just keep you very current on things as they proceed. But for now, uh, we're asking you to join us, to thank God for his provision for our church body now and for the days to come. In fact, would you please uh, pray with me now as we pray for Ryan and Tabitha and for this church. God, we thank you for the way you have been so faithful. You have been so good to us. Thank you for caring for us so well. We think about all of the different ways. Bill reminded us this morning of, oh, so many ways that you've been faithful to us just in the recent months, and this is a part of that, your care, your direction, your oversight. And so, God, we want to pray for Ryan and Tabitha. We pray for them as they communicate on their end to their church and their volunteers, their students, people that they love. We pray for them as a family as they engage in all of the different parts of this transition. And, God, we pray for us as a church that you would give us from yourself clarity, wisdom. Lord, we would ask that you would unite us As we have sensed as an elder team that this is the man, we pray that we would sense that as a church and that we would welcome them and that we would find in this provision from you great blessing for our young people, for our families, for this church, and we pray for the Fultzes as well. So God, we commit this to you. Carry it forward. We're following you. Help us to do that with all our hearts. And God, we pray now as we come to your word, this time when we place ourselves under the authority of your word, we need your help. God, I need your help, so I pray for physical and mental strength. I pray that for every one of us, for physical and mental strength this morning. But God, we need something a whole lot more than just our physical and mental strength. Something bigger, something larger. And so God, we pray, come, be with us. Speak to us. Make your presence and your power known. We thank you for these ancient words, ever true. We're listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, would you please now take your Bibles, turn with me to this wonderful book of Romans, chapter 13. We are going to look at the second half of this chapter this morning, so would you follow along as I read, starting at verse 8. I'll read to the end of the chapter. And by the way, as I read, you pay really close attention. There's so many things in here that you'll need to catch, and so I'll read carefully. You listen carefully. This is God's Word. Romans 13, starting at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So let's get this book back in focus for ourselves this morning. After having laid out in very careful, very thorough terms this glorious gospel of God's righteousness provided for us through Christ, so that we might be brought back into right relationship with God, which is the most important, the most glorious thing in the universe, to be in right relationship with God. After laying that out in chapters 1 through 11, Paul, he begins now to unpack for us the kind of life that flows out from that amazing gospel, the kind of life that people will live if they've truly received the amazing mercy and grace of God. Remember those those oh-so-important words right at the beginning of chapter 12. After all of that, chapters 1 through 11, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, sisters, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to him. This is, this is your right and spiritual worship. You can hear it in his voice. The urgency and the conviction and the confidence of his pastoral calling, he is standing squarely, firmly on the gospel, and he's calling us to live our lives for God. And when we come to this passage in the second half of chapter 13, Paul speaks with an even greater level of intensity and urgency. I just want you to imagine with me for this morning, for for a moment here, some situation where a group of people are in high alert, Maybe a hurricane is brewing out over the ocean and it's moving toward their coastal town. Everybody is in high alert. They know what this means. Nobody is just kind of going about business as usual. Windows are being boarded. Provisions are being purchased. Emergency plans are in place. Or maybe think about 
think about a war and the enemy is steadily advancing toward your city. I think about those people in London during World War II when those Nazi warplanes came over the city night after night dropping bombs. Everyone was on high alert. Nobody is just going about business as usual. There is a, a state of high awareness, high readiness. It affects how you live. You don't just ignore the situation, the storm or the enemy planes and pretend it doesn't exist and you kind of just go on living as usual. No, you're on high alert. You know, that's the true situation for Christians living in this world. Except it doesn't feel like that most of the time. It feels ordinary most of the time. This world is a pretty comfy place for most of us. So Paul says, listen, Christian, you need to get a true sense of things. Christian, you cannot just go through your life letting this world define how you live, and you certainly can't get drowsy. Don't fall asleep. There's a real situation, and that situation calls for vigilance. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So we've got to be on alert, high alert. So what's Paul talking about here? The night is far gone. The day is at hand. What, what is this? Well, what Paul is saying is that we are living at a time of great transition. We're living in an overlap, if you will, of two great spiritual ages. Do you remember back in chapter 12, verse 2, when Paul said, do not be conformed to this world? That word, world, actually literally is age. Don't be conformed to this present age, this present evil age. There's a spiritual condition a spiritual reality that defines this age. It's evil. It's darkness. However, when Christ came into the world, he broke into that darkness and he brought light. He inaugurated a new spiritual age. And in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he defeated the darkness and he established the kingdom of light. God's new world has been launched. The sun is rising. But that kingdom has not yet been fully established. The present age is still fallen. It's marked by darkness and sin and still ruled by Satan who is called the God of this age. So as Christians, we live in this overlap. The night is still here. It's all around us. There's still sin. There's still suffering. There's still tears. There's still death. But the day is coming nearer. It's already broken in, and it will come. Jesus will come, and he will utterly do away with all the darkness, and that should fill us with such encouragement and hope and gladness. The day is at hand. Things are moving forward. This is a word of hope to Christians here who long to be done with sinning and with suffering and with death. I love what Jesus says in Luke chapter 21. He says, when these things come to pass, lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing nigh. And so that's what Paul means when he says at the end of verse 11, 
your salvation is nearer now than it was when you first believed. He's speaking about that coming redemption. You know, you might read that and think, wait a minute, I I thought I already had my salvation. I thought I was already saved. Well, if you've put your trust in Christ, you are. But Paul regularly speaks of salvation in its three different parts. We have been saved, and we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved from sin's penalty. That's justification, and it's done once for all. We are being saved from sin's power in our lives. That's sanctification, and it's happening now, and God will see to it that it's done. And we will be saved from sin's very presence. That's glorification, and that will happen when we are brought into God's presence and we will be completely done with sin and sinning. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that full and final redemption. Look back for just a moment with me to chapter 8. You'll remember this. Chapter 8, verse 23, Paul's talking about how creation is groaning, looking forward to that time. Chapter 8, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with Patience. That's what Paul's speaking of here when he says salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You know, for Paul, it's been a little over 20 years. It's best we can figure. From the time that he first believed, roughly A.D. 30, 33, and there somewhere, to the time he's writing this letter, which is around A.D. 57, a little over 20 years, and every day brought him closer to that salvation. Every day brings us one day nearer. Every day of our life here with all of its groaning is getting us closer to the greatest thing of all, being with Christ without any spot, without any blemish. Your freedom from sinning, your freedom from any suffering, your perfect ability to be with and perfectly enjoy God is getting closer every day. And again, that should fill you with such hope and such eagerness. Yes, we live in a dark age, and yes, that should put us on high alert, but that is not the main reality, not for Christians. The main reality for Christians is that Christ has come. Light has come. The day is dawning, and Christ will come. So let's be, Paul says, fully awake. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. You see Paul's argument there right at the beginning of verse 11? Yes, Paul has already said, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, what God has done for you through Christ, that should motivate you all that God has done for you in Christ. But this too is foundation. It's motivation for the Christian life, for gospel living, what is coming, what Christ will do, what God has promised will happen. Paul is saying there in verses 11 and 12, live like this for your salvation, your redemption, 
is nearer. The night is almost over. The day is about to be fully here. So then, in light of that, Christian, make sure you're wide awake and fully dressed. Did you notice how Paul spoke that way? Two times in this passage, he explicitly says, I want you to put something on. Christian, you've got to put something on. It's a metaphor he likes to use, this image of clothing ourselves. He uses it in the letter to the Ephesians. He uses it in the letter to the Colossians, put on. He's not the only one that uses it to describe the Christian life. The Apostle Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility, every one of you. So Paul uses this image here to make sure that we're dressed with certain things. We've got certain things on in our lives as Christians. He actually stresses three things to put on. He doesn't use the phrase put on with the first thing, but he he means it. He says it elsewhere. Here they are. Here's the three things. Love, light, and the Lord. Paul is saying to these Roman Christians... God's word is saying to us this morning, in light not just of God's mercies past, but in light of where things are right now and where things are going, you need to make sure you put on love. And you need to make sure you put on light, the armor of light. And you need, we need to make sure we put on the Lord Jesus. So now with our remaining time, let's just look at each one of those in turn. First, love. Look with me again at verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All of those commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, please notice how Paul is arguing here. He's talking about the law given to Moses by God primarily embodied in those Ten Commandments, the first half of which have to do with our relationship with God, the second half of which have to do with our relationship to others. In fact, Paul lists four of those last five commandments. He leaves one out, the one about bearing false witness. I don't think there's anything significant about that. I think he's just going from memory. And and by the way, he covers it by saying, and any other commandment. But his point is that obedience to these commandments is love toward our neighbors. A failure to keep these commandments is a failure to love our neighbors. So if we put on love, we will in fact fulfill all of these commandments automatically. That obedience will bring to expression in real life circumstances our love for one another. So act in love. Put on love and you will be walking in all of these areas, in all of these ways, in a way that is pleasing to God, in step with God. Here's the point. In terms of how we relate to each other, love is going to get it all done. So, Christian, put on love. Yes, owe no one anything. He covered that last week. Except to love each other. Keep putting on love. Well, what might that look like? I found this helpful this past week, something I read. It's an attempt to answer that question. What does this look like to pay the continuing debt of loving one another? Here's what this author suggested. Four things. First, 
listen to one another. I tell you, we live in an age in which few people really listen to one another. We all want to talk. And we're living in a day and age where there's way too many platforms and way too many media that allow us to talk. To really love another person, we must listen. So put on love by listening. Second, share yourself with one another. Open your heart, your life. Yes, we should listen, but we should also share. This is a way to show love and build relationship, opening your own life. So put on love, share of yourself. Third, forgive one another. I mean, what an act of love this is. None of us is without sin. And we will sin against each other. What an act of love it is to forgive. Not to shove sin or the hurt underneath the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. That's not forgiveness. But instead to stand squarely on the gospel and in Christ forgive one who has sinned against us. So put on love and forgive when someone sins against you. And the fourth thing this guy suggested was serve one another. Serve. This doesn't come naturally, which is one of the reasons why I think the Bible speaks about it so often. In fact, this was one of the last things that Jesus talked about with his disciples. Remember that time up in the upper room discourse? They're gathered there. They had their last supper together, and afterwards Jesus took off his outer cloak, and he got down on his knees, and he took a towel and a basin, and he proceeded to wash the feet of every one of his disciples. And then when he was done, he looked at them and he said, as I've done to you, you do to one another. And not long after that, he was gone. So care for one another's needs. Serve each other. That's how you'll love each other. Put on love. So in light of this present circumstance, the fact that it's still dark out, but the day is coming. Christian, wake up and get dressed and put on love. You've got to put it on. But that's not the only thing to put on. Second, put on light. Light, verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We put on love in connection with how we relate to each other, but now we put on light in connection with our conduct, our behavior, our lifestyle. And there's something very important for us to notice here. Part of being dressed in light, putting on light, is putting off anything that has to do with darkness. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. You know, for most of the Gentile believers in that church in Rome, uh, their past would have been marked by all these kinds of darkness. And Paul tells them in no uncertain terms, just as God's word now tells us in no uncertain terms, I want you to get rid of those things. He says, I'm telling you, based on the mercies of God and based on the fact that you are no longer in the night, you are of the day, 
I'm telling you to get these things that are of the darkness out of your life. Cast them off. And put on, please notice this, the armor of light. That word armor implies something, doesn't it? Like battle. Notice he doesn't say, put on the tunic or the, you know, the sash or the, the scarf. This is not decorative. It's armor. So what is this, this armor of light? I just want you to listen to this this morning. I think you'll find this very helpful in understanding our passage. This is Paul writing to another group of Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica who were facing the very same kind of situation and needed to be put on high alert. Just listen. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Now here's the armor. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So, the armor of light, Romans chapter 13, verse 12, is faith, love, and hope. Listen, your faith in Christ is armor. Your love for Christ is armor. Your hope in Christ is armor. Put that on. Like every day. Exercise your faith. Stir up your love. Remind yourself of what you've been promised and put your hope there. Be strong in the Lord. You know, I find it so interesting looking back at verse 13. It starts this list of the works of darkness so extreme. It's like shocking orgies and drunkenness. And it ends with quarreling and jealousy, which seems so ordinary and everydayish. Paul may have, he may have included those last two things to prepare us for what he's going to talk about in chapter 14, maybe. But here they are included in this list of the works of darkness, our, our, one-up, our one-upsmanship or our demanding control over some little situation, or our brooding over wrongs done to us. Paul is saying, listen, whatever it is, whatever end of the extreme, whether it's this shocking external stuff or this brooding internal stuff, put it off. But what we need to see is that part of the process, please get this, part of the process of putting that stuff off is putting on things that belong to the light things that there's no shame in, things that are very attractive. In fact, they're even attractive to unbelievers. Unbelievers want these things. 
They just often don't want to constrain their freedom, which is necessary to get these things. Christian, in light of the current circumstances, the fact that there's still darkness all around us, but we are not of the darkness, we are of the light, and daytime is coming, wake up and get dressed. Put on light. You've got to put it on. Now, Paul has one last thing to say. Yes, put on love. Yes, put on light. But look at how this ends, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, I don't believe this is actually some third thing. I believe this is Paul's summary statement. He's putting it all together here. You see, the way to put on love is to put on Jesus, who is the most loving one ever. The, the way to put on light is to put on Jesus, who is the most holy and pure one ever. So Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Christian. What does that mean? Right now you're thinking, help me, Pastor Mike, because there's something in my heart. I read that, I hear you say that, and I know that's it, and I want it, but how do you how do, you do that? So I'm thinking about this. This past week, Friday morning, I'm just sitting in my chair up on the third floor of Parkside's library. I'm just thinking about this phrase. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What am I going to say on Sunday morning? How am I going to help people? And I thought about that. I just sat there and thought about that for what seemed like a long time. And at one point, I just thought, man, you are making this way too hard. It means to want Jesus. It means to choose Christ. I treasure Jesus. It means to be consciously aware that he is near, and I want that, to, to trust him, to love him, to put my hope in him. I want closeness with him, to kind of consciously embrace him in such a way that his presence is what makes me happy, and his presence is what makes me hopeful. And his character, as a result, is increasingly showing up in what I do and what I say. Compassion and kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness and love, all of these Christ-likenesses. It's saying to Jesus, I want you and your ways today. Such that we are increasingly changed and transformed into the image of the Son. That's putting on the Lord. And by so doing, please notice this. Please notice the relationship between the two halves of verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and by so doing, make no provision for the flesh. All right, let me just ask one last question to wrap this up. Why would we do all this? I mean, this being alert... And all this putting on, it seems like work and a lot of seriousness. I mean, why can't we just chill a bit? Why do this? Here's the answer. Because of God's mercy toward you in Christ that he's already shown. So do you have a deep personal understanding, a deep personal appreciation of what God has done for you? and because of God's mercy towards you in Christ that is yet to come. 
Do you have a growing sense, a growing longing for your full and final salvation? I sure do. Listen, we have in God's mercy and grace towards us in Christ all the motivation that we need to put on love and light and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when we do it, it puts Jesus on display. See, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is not just some private strategy for Christian living that you kind of do in your own little private space. It's our life. And we do it so that he is made much of this very same Paul. About four years after he wrote this, he actually went to Rome, um, not of his own choosing. (laughs) He was arrested in the city of Jerusalem, and he was shipped off to Rome to be tried. And while he's there in prison, waiting on his trial, he kept writing letters, very similar to this one. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he wrote a letter to the church in Colossae, and he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. And in that letter, he said these words, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ may be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ. He's saying, that's my desire. That's why I put Christ on as I live my day-to-day life because of all he's done for me and because of all that he's promised to do, my salvation is even closer now. I want to live my life for him and for his glory. And right here, friends, right here, in Romans chapter 13 in your Bible, God's word is calling us to do the very same thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege we have of being in this room together. Pray that you would take that word and make it do what you want it to do in each one of our lives. And would you help us to help one another in that process? God, you've called us to be a church. We want to be a faithful church. We want to do that because we know it's pleasing to you, it's for your glory, but we also know because you are good and what you do is good, that it's for our good. And so God, we pray, take your word, plant it deep, help it to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to sing of our treasuring.